You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Nacon has returned from four years in the shadows to snoop around the shores of the South China Sea. Tencent trained censorship algorithms on WeChat. Snake ransomware is back, making its way through the healthcare sector. Charming kittens' paw prints are showing up in World Health Organization networks. Voting security during or even after a pandemic. Malek Ben Salem from Accenture Labs on their technology vision report. My guest is Thomas Ridd from Johns Hopkins University with his latest book, Active Measures. And unemployed workers are offered gigs as money mules. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, May 8th, 2020. NACON, a threat group that's now generally associated with the Chinese government, has resurfaced to affect targets in the Asia-Pacific region. Kaspersky says the group appears to be Chinese-speaking, but that's on the cautious side. Just about everybody else says, straight up, it's Beijing, or more accurately, Kunming. Nacon had been detected in 2015 by ThreatConnect and DGI, who attributed it to a People's Liberation Army unit in the Chengdu military region, specifically to a second technical reconnaissance bureau outfit, with the military unit cover designator 78020. Unit 78020 is headquartered in Kunming and has responsibility for developing intelligence about Southeast Asia, with a special emphasis on nations who claim territorial waters in the South China Sea. The threat actor had gone largely unseen since its initial discovery, but checkpoint researchers now report observing it in a major campaign, distributing a novel and hitherto unknown payload Aria body, which combines remote code execution, data destruction, and data exfiltration capabilities. The University of Toronto's Citizen Lab is warning of another ongoing Chinese campaign, this one involving Tencent's use of its popular WeChat app to monitor social media content exchanged within the Chinese diaspora. Content moderation, essentially suppression of politically sensitive topics, has long been practiced on WeChat, What's new is the extension of surveillance to users outside of China proper. Citizen Lab thinks the effort is designed to train censorship algorithms. Snake, a ransomware strain malware hunter warned against back in January, has been noted for the attention it pays to obfuscation as well as for its ability to reach into and encrypt files on all devices connected to a victim's network. Dragos, which called the malware ECANS, reported its activity against industrial control systems. ECANS is Snake, spelled backward, to avoid confusion, with other unrelated malware also called Snake, or some variation thereof, that was associated with the Turla threat actor, and whose researchers were probably the first to observe the strain. 
Krebs on Security has over the last two days reported that Snake was implicated in an attack against Germany-based Fresenius Group, Europe's largest private hospital network. Fresenius declined to go into much detail about the incident, but a company spokesman told Krebs on Security, quote, I can confirm that Fresenius IT Security detected a computer virus on company computers. As a precautionary measure in accordance with our security protocol drawn up for such cases, steps have been taken to prevent further spread. We have also informed the relative investigating authorities, and while some functions within the company are currently limited, patient care continues. Our IT experts are continuing to work on solving the problem as quickly as possible and ensuring that operations run as smoothly as possible. End quote. The campaign is unlikely to be an isolated attack on Fresenius. While Fresenius is a big enterprise, the current snake outbreak seems to be a part of a larger effort against healthcare organizations working to provide emergency care during the COVID-19 pandemic. Data availability is, of course, immediately threatened by any ransomware attack, but Tripwire says that Snake has apparently joined other ransomware families in stealing sensitive data, then threatening to publish it on victim-shaming sites. The World Health Organization expects to continue its struggles against cyber attacks and influence operations, and there's more evidence, circumstantial but strong, that Iran's charming kitten threat group has been responsible for phishing attempts against the organization. Bloomberg reports that the attackers posed as representatives of a media organization, the BBC, or a think tank, the American Foreign Policy Council, in emails that sought to induce the recipients to open malicious attachments represented as either a coronavirus newsletter or a set of proposed interview questions. ClearSky Cybersecurity reviewed the emails for Bloomberg and concluded that the domains featured in the emails and the use of the link shortener bit.ly were the tip-offs. The charming kitten operators seem to be interested, at least at first, in collecting email credentials from WHO employees. WHO told Bloomberg that it had closed some systems in order to prevent hackers from gaining access to them, recruited new employees for its computer security team, and enlisted the help of several security companies. But the attacks are wearing, and a WHO spokesperson says that it will be difficult for the organization to remain on high alert for much longer. The Washington Post reports the pandemic has put a spoke in the wheels of training programs that would teach election workers how to secure voting. It's also raised the likelihood that more ballots in the U.S. and elsewhere will have to be cast remotely, in all probability mostly by mail, but in some cases online. Neither are easy to improvise at the 11th hour. All electronic balloting presents problems that paper ballots don't. Paper ballots aren't problem-free either, and the history of corrupt elections goes back to the early 19th century at least, but they come with a different set of problems. A group of academic and industry experts concerned with electronic voting have sent the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, a letter expressing their appreciation for CISA's work, but more importantly, stating concerns about CISA's advisories about election security. The signatories see three basic problems. Voting online makes it more difficult to securely deliver ballots. Online balloting is vulnerable to cyber attacks that could submit fraudulent ballots. And surprisingly, administering the back-end processing of electronically transmitted blank ballots is more labor-intensive than processing pre-printed paper absentee ballots. And finally, be careful of accepting part-time gigs. Fish Labs warns that workers in the U.S. and Canada who've lost their jobs during the COVID-19 emergency 
are being prospected with phishing emails that appear to offer gigs that would help tide them over through the crisis. It's an unusually cruel scam, coming as it does when the unemployment rates, in the U.S. at least, are hitting post-World War II highs. An email arrives, often impersonating the Human Resources Department of a well-known corporation like Wells Fargo, with the offer of a part-time personal services job that would enable the recipient to earn much-needed money while working from home. The recipient is asked to reply to the email for details. The job, it eventually becomes clear, is work as a money mule for a criminal enterprise. Those familiar with the ways in which intelligence services recruit, compromise, and run agents will note that the criminals have learned from the spymasters. They begin by habituating the recruits to performing small, innocent tasks, then escalate to things that seem a bit sketchier, and finally have them running money for the gang. By that time, the victim often feels they're too far gone, too compromised, to withdraw. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. My guest today is Thomas Ridd. He's Professor of Strategic Studies at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies. In a review of his 2013 book, Cyber War Will Not Take Place, The Economist called Thomas Ridd one of Britain's leading authorities on and skeptics about cyber warfare. His most recent book is titled Active Measures, The Secret History of Disinformation and Political Warfare. Yeah, so I was uh, in 2016, early 2016, 
I had been tracking Moonlight Maze, uh, this old late 1990s Russian espionage campaign in detail, down to the level of, you know, doing old for malware analysis um, of old artifacts that I was able to dig up. And when I was in the middle of this, uh, the election interference um, started in June 2016. And we saw this marrying of hacking and leaking as well as some deception forgery built in. And I realized after, you know, watching this for a while and after reading up on the background that I am not equipped to understand the real, the dynamics that are going on here because I don't have the historical background knowledge. So I decided to write a book about it. Hmm. And and so looking throughout uh, history, as you do in the book, um, who were the the major players when it came to this? Yeah, so the the big players that I'm covering in the book is uh, it starts off with um, the early Cheka, the the predecessor organization to the KGB, headed by Felix Dzerzhinsky, the legendary founder of the Cheka. And um, but I'm also have several chapters on CIA operations in the 1950s that uh, really deploy some of the same tactics, not quite as aggressive. Um, for example, there's no anti-Semitic uh, disinformation or racial disinformation coming from uh, CIA. But uh, Stasi was amazing at this. So, you know, I'm German born myself and I interviewed a few uh, former Stasi disinformation officers, too, for the book um, among other officers. And it was just an amazing experience also on a personal level for me to talk to Stasi officers who spent their entire career running disinformation operations. Yeah, well, let's move into the digital age. Um, in the 90s, uh, as um, the internet comes online and, and we find ourselves more and more connected, how did these campaigns change and evolve to take advantage of these uh, new connected capabilities? Well, obviously the rise of the internet coincided with the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm. So for most of the 1990s, late 1990s, you had this strange moment in history where the internet, internet utopianism, you know, mostly coming from California, dominated. So initially leak sites, like for example, Cryptome, and indeed WikiLeaks in their early days, were seen as a positive development only, as a move towards transparency. There was a lot of naivete and optimism built into this. Same applies to the anonymous movement, you know, the Guy Fawkes masks and, and all that. But in fact, what happened is that a dream come true for intelligence officers, Eastern, uh, you know, uh, Cold War, Eastern Bloc intelligence officers, this was, a, this was the perfect situation. You could now surface leaked information or forged information in a way that didn't involve journalists, but you could just simply upload it to some anonymous website and go from there. And we see that emerging in late 2013, throughout 2014, and then coming with force in 2015, especially in Ukraine. How much do the cultures of individual nations uh, inform the type of disinformation that they employ? Yeah, that, that is a very perceptive question also. I think the 
You know, what you see in the 1960s already, but getting stronger as we move in, in the 70s and 80s, is that communism as an ideology is, sent, is in a way weakens um, people, even inside the intelligence establishment, you know, make jokes about communism. Of course, some of them are still ardent communists, but it becomes sort of this weird cynicism uh, sets in and people become the two layers to the conversation, what people say in private and what people say at the workplace or in public. Mm. And that, that cynicism, that double standard, ultimately, I think, made them, uh, the Eastern Bloc, better at disinformation because they were trained at home to spot contradictions and to tolerate contradictions and to play with contradictions. And that's exactly what you need to do to run active measures. You need to spot the contradictions of your adversary and then play with them and exacerbate them. Where do you suppose we find ourselves today in the U.S. With the, in this era of fake news and, and so much polarization politically? Where does that place us in terms of our susceptibility to this sort of disinformation? Yeah, I think we have become more vulnerable and less vulnerable at the same time. More vulnerable mm -hmm. because, you know, we're more polarized as a society today than at any time that any of us can remember, probably, which certainly makes it easier to exploit that polarization. But at the same time, of course, there are more eyeballs on disinformation, on intrusion attempts. There are better forensics than ever before. So, you know, if I were a Russian planner at GRU or something, I would be a little nervous because it's really hard to deliver against the high expectations that your own leadership Uh, let alone the adversary, um, may have um, based on our overstatement uh, and somewhat panicked reaction to what happened in 2016. Our thanks to Thomas Ridd for joining us. The book is titled Active Measures, The Secret History of Disinformation and Political Warfare. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Malek Ben-Salem. She is the America's cybersecurity R&D lead for Accenture. Malek, it is always great to have you back. Um, uh, the Accenture team recently published uh, a tech vision survey, and uh, you pointed out some, uh, some areas of that survey that are relevant to folks in security. What sort of things do you have to share with us? Yeah, last month we launched uh, Accenture's technology vision. This is our annual thought leadership report that identifies emerging technology trends. Uh, this year's report is entitled, We, the Post-Digital People, Can Your Enterprise Survive the Tech Clash? And it explores how in a world where digital is everywhere, enterprises need to reimagine their fundamental technology approach to create new business value, and more importantly, to align to customers' and employees' values. They've identified, you know, five different trends, but the main theme was that what we refer to in today's environment as a tech lash or a backlash against technology, uh, that's not the real story. In fact, people still love technology. They use it more than ever, uh, but rather it's a tech clash, a clash between business and technology models that are incongruous with people's needs and expectations. And one of the uh, trends they, that they identify is what they call this dilemma of smart things. Uh, you know, companies are producing these smart devices, 
you know, they're out there for a long time. They keep getting updated. The software and firmware gets updated over time. And just that basically is a new reality of product ownership where the, the product is, is in this constant or forever beta state. The, the big takeaways from this trend are the need to design a product for the entire journey of product ownership, including the end of life cycle of that product. And what they've highlighted is some of the interesting examples where, you know, Jibo uh, Home Robot was discontinued last year. And right. users, you know, could enter, could talk to it. They could say, hey, Jibo, but it would no longer understand or respond to any uh, other voice commands. Also, Google announced that it would be shutting down the Works with Nest program in favor of the Works with Google Assistant solution. Hmm. And, uh, you know, people just, uh, you know, pushed back on that, which made Google announce that, you know, the existing works with Nest connections would stay online. But as companies design for that, they got to be thinking about how this is relevant to security. Not only will these old devices limit the business and its ability to deliver, you know, the greatest experience for our users, they will begin to generate risk for the whole ecosystem because it's hmm. aging technology, you know, it's rife with security vulnerabilities. So building a strategy about uh, for how to smoothly transition customers from one generation of the product to the next will be a key component of customer retention, but also of, you know, good security hygiene. Hmm. All right. Well, the name of the report is the Accenture Technology Vision for 2020. Uh, do check it out. Malek Ben Salem, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.